0: rugby player. My self-titled hip-hop debut album sold 150,000 copies in the first week and in my spare time I'm a keen amateur bodybuilder. Now of course none of that is true. But if it were, wouldn't it have been a surprise? Wouldn't it have shattered your expectations? Well shattered expectations are our focus this morning. ...in our passage in Mark's Gospel. So do turn back to it if you've closed it. It's on page 1012. And we're at a turning point in the Gospel of Mark... ...where Jesus is about to reveal something crucial... ...about who he is. He's going to tell us more about what kind of king he is... ...and what it will look like to follow him. But you'll notice that what he says shocks... ...even his closest disciples... And it's still shocking for us today. So let's dive in. Our first point, the son of man must suffer. Let me read again from chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why does Peter rebuke Jesus? That's a weird thing to do, isn't it? That's quite odd. Especially because three verses prior to this, Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah. And not only that, but it's taken us eight chapters to get to a point in Mark's Gospel where one of the disciples finally realizes who Jesus is. Peter realizes Jesus is the Messiah. That means the authoritative, divine, eternal king over the whole world. It's a huge conclusion to come to. And so to rebuke the Messiah, the king of the universe, is odd, isn't it? Peter must have been so appalled at what Jesus had just said. And so to understand Peter's shock, we need to understand what it means for Jesus to say the Son of Man must suffer. Now what is this title, the Son of Man? What does that mean? In the Old Testament book of Daniel, the Son of Man is a character who is given ultimate power and authority. And in Mark, Jesus uses this title for himself at key moments when he displays power and authority, when he he heals the paralytic and when he declares himself Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is connected with power and authority, but not suffering. The Son of Man and suffering don't go together. Like oil and water, they don't mix. Or like orange juice and toothpaste, the idea of the two together just puts you off. So we can see why Peter might find this hard to stomach. Imagine the situation. Peter pulls the king of the universe aside and says, no, no, Jesus, you've got this completely wrong. The son of man doesn't suffer. You're the Messiah. You're here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Just like you said, the kingdom's coming. How can you say that you'll suffer? So we can sympathize with Peter to an extent. But Jesus is having absolutely none of it. Verse 33, Jesus responds to Peter by saying, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Is that the response we expect from the lips of Jesus? Peter is told that to deny that the Son of Man must suffer is satanic. Satanic. To deny that the Son of Man must suffer is satanic, it's evil, it's opposed to God. How do you react to that? That sounds strong, doesn't it? And even for us Christians who know that Jesus did suffer, do we believe that it is central to who Jesus is? Do we believe that it was essential that he suffered first? That it wasn't an accident, but that he had to suffer. To believe otherwise is not, is not harmless. Not just a different emphasis, but according to Jesus, it's satanic. So to say Jesus' death was a tragic accident, satanic. To say Jesus didn't have to die, Evil. Jesus says he had to suffer before being raised in glory. Suffering first, glory later. Which means we must hold these things together when we consider Jesus. He is the authoritative king over the whole world. And he must suffer. He's the divine ruler. And he was deserted by his friends. He was God in the flesh, and he was killed. Why? It's a bizarre paradox, isn't it? Mark tells us later that Jesus died for our sake, giving his life as a ransom to pay the price for our freedom. This is why to deny Jesus' suffering is satanic, because Satan doesn't want us to be free. Jesus took upon himself the judgment of God for your rebellion and mine. It was necessary. The Son of Man had to suffer first. So is this the Christ you know? When you consider Jesus, do you hold this path in your mind of suffering first and glory later? The truth that Jesus is the divine ruler of the universe, the judge of the whole earth... But that he suffered first, at the hands of men, for our sake. And so because this is Jesus' path, it is the path of his followers too. That's our second point. His followers must follow his pattern. And so Jesus goes on to talk about his followers Just as Jesus' path meant suffer first, glory later, our path is the same. Suffer now, glory later. And so in the same way that Jesus was challenging our understanding of him as the Christ, now he's challenging what it means to follow him. So right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus called the first disciples like this, follow me. And so far, being a follower of Jesus has meant humbly listening to him. But we haven't seen anything like this. Let me read again from verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. That's a phrase that has lost its edge today, I suggest. We say we all have our cross to bear when we're taking out the bins or doing the ironing or cleaning up after the dog or something slightly unpleasant. But to Peter and the disciples, it meant something else entirely. The cross was an instrument of torture designed to cause agonising, humiliating death. It was reserved for the most appalling criminals, the lowest of the low. It meant shame and dishonour. And Jesus says that whoever would be his disciple must choose this kind of life. A life of self-denial, shame, suffering and ultimately death. Deny yourself, take up your electric chair and follow me. And notice at this stage we don't get a lot of detail as to what this way of life is going to look like other than... Verse 35, where Jesus says that we're to lose life for my sake and the Gospels. So we're not talking about suffering for the sake of suffering. Rather, being willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus and the Gospel. It's choosing to serve Jesus instead of serving myself. Jesus' followers must follow his pattern. Suffer first, glory later. How do we feel about that? It is quite jarring, isn't it? Jesus begins the gospel by saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Is this what the kingdom of God is like? What about the snapshots of the kingdom that Jesus has shown us of no more pain and no more suffering? Well, those things will come when Jesus comes again, but he suffered first. And so just like suffering is central to who Jesus is, it's central to who we, as his followers, are as well. Jesus suffered first, so do we. Suffer now, glory later. Now we are used to this idea in some areas of life, the idea of undergoing some kind of pain or suffering before glory, Perhaps the best illustration is childbirth. Now, this is something I obviously have no experience of, apart from being born myself. But the less said about that, the better. So without going into too much detail, there is pain and suffering involved in bringing a new life into the world. The pain comes first. The glory, the baby, comes after. And this timeline is fixed. Pain first, baby later. If there are any mothers here that want to tell me I've got that wrong, please come and correct me afterwards, but I think that's right. So pain first, baby later. Suffer first, glory later. But I wonder what we think following Jesus ought to look like now. If you're like me, maybe you think something like a comfortable, moderately successful sort of life with a a bit of extra church going. I think that my expectations for my life before I became a Christian and after I became a Christian were were only superficially different. But if I follow a king who suffers first, why should I expect life to be any different? If even the king of the universe suffered first, why should we as his followers expect any difference? But maybe maybe you do feel like you're losing your life now for the sake of the gospel. Maybe you're undergoing any number of trials as a follower of Jesus. Perhaps work is harder because you've been speaking about the Lord Jesus. Maybe obeying Jesus causes you to be mocked or not taken seriously or looked down on. And it's possible in moments like that to think that maybe something's gone wrong. We might ask ourselves, "Surely I'm on the side of the king of the universe? What's going on? Why am I suffering?" Well, nothing has gone wrong. I mean, even this, this passage even seems to tell us that this is the normal pattern of the Christian life. Nothing has gone wrong. In fact, following Jesus is always going to be hard because we follow a king who suffered first. We follow Jesus's pattern. But it's a big ask, isn't it? And why would anybody choose to follow this pattern? Well, part of the answer is in verses 36 to 38, and that's our third point. Because the Son of Man will return in glory The motivation for choosing a life of self-denial now is the future return of the Son of Man. Let me read from verse 35 again. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So do you see here we have the carrot and the stick, the positive and the negative. So positively, whoever loses their life now will save it. Can you see that in verse 35? It's certain. And verse 36 says that to save our soul is more valuable than anything, even the whole world. To save your life beyond death into eternity is more precious than anything this world has to offer. Denying yourself now to follow Jesus is worth it because the Son of Man will not be ashamed of us when he returns in glory. That's the carrot. Now the stick. There is nothing in this world that I can exchange for my soul. In verse 37. Once it's lost, it's lost. And verse 38 says that when the Son of Man returns, if I'm ashamed of him in this life, well, he will be ashamed of me then the one who has all authority over God's eternal kingdom will cast me out. So you see, positively and negatively, the motivation is the return of the Son of Man in glory. Now this changes everything. If there is a future glory, then it is worth choosing this life of suffering now. How certain is future glory? Well, the King is risen! And is coming back, verse 38. The Son of Man does not stay dead. He is risen and he will return in glory. And imagine for a moment with me that there was no glorious return of the Son of Man. Let's take this out of our Bibles. It sounds appalling, doesn't it? And it is. But isn't this often how we think? Because the, the future coming of the Son of Man is not at the front of my mind most of the time. And yet without it, what reason could I possibly have to follow this, po- this pattern? It's a lose-lose. Lose life now, no life later. So when being a Christian becomes difficult and I do feel like I'm losing my life, well, I'll give up, will I? But if you're here and and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here listening to what the Lord Jesus says. I imagine the idea of losing life now seems quite unattractive. Maybe even the opposite of what you thought being a Christian was all about. But I hope you can see that the future coming of the Lord Jesus makes all the difference. How will he respond to you on that day? Will he be ashamed of you? Or will he save you? Because these verses are very clear that he will reject those who reject him. So please take the opportunity while you're here to uh, ask any more questions you might have about the claims of Jesus. Um, or maybe make use of this card that you'll have found in, inside your Bibles. as a sign-up card um, and there's a box you can tick that says, Courses and Events Exploring the Christian Faith. That would be a great way to, to keep on thinking about The things that we've been talking about this morning. So, finally, the surprising pattern that Jesus and his followers walk is one of suffering now, but unimaginable glory later. Let me read verses 31 and 34 as we close. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Allow me to lead us in prayer together. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you that he laid down his life for the sake of others. And we pray that you would teach us to do the same. Forgive us when we don't think rightly about King Jesus or what it means to be his follower. And Father, we find it hard to follow this pattern. We find it hard to follow Jesus in this way. So please help us to deny ourselves and to follow him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.